Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 25 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 25. What do you think of him now? This was a document, and these the words, which Deborah, widow of the man thus doubly denounced, had been given to read by the father of the writer in the darkened room which had been, and still was to her, an abode of brooding thought and unfathomable mystery. No wonder that, during its reading, more than one exclamation of terror and dismay escaped her, as the once rehabilitated form of the dead and gone started into dreadful life again before her eyes. There were so many reasons for believing this record to be an absolute relation of the truth. Incoherent phrases which had fallen from those long closed lips took on new meaning with this unveiling of an unknown past, repugnances for which she could not account in those old days. She now saw explained, he would never, even in passing, give a look at the ruin on the bluff so attractive to every eye but his own. As for entering its gates, she had never dared so much as to ask him to do so. He had never expressed his antipathy for the place, but he had made her feel it. She doubted now if he would have climbed to it from the ravine, even to save his child from falling over its verge. Indeed, she saw the reason now why he could not explain the reason for the apathy he showed in his hunt for Ruther on that fatal day, and his so marked avoidance of the height where she was found. Then the watch. Deborah knew well that watch. She had often asked him by what stroke of luck he had got so fine a timepiece, but he had never told her. Later, it had been stolen from him, and as he had a mania for watches, that was why, perhaps. God, was her mind veering back to her old idea as to his responsibility for the crime committed in Dark Hollow? Yes, she could not help it. Denial from a monster like this, a man who, with such memories and such spoil, could return home to wife and child with some gay and confused story of a great stroke in speculation, which had brought him in the price of the tavern it had long been his ambition to own. What was denial from such lips worth, though emphasized by the most sacred of oaths and uttered under the shadow of death? The judge was right. Oliver, whose ingenious story had restored his image to her mind with some of its old graces, had been the victim of circumstances, and not John Scoville. Henceforth, she would see him as such. And when she had recovered a little from the effect of this sudden insight into the revolting past, she would, 
her thoughts had reached this stage and her hand in obedience to the new mood was lightly ruffling up the pages before her when she felt a light touch on her shoulder and turned with a start the judge was at her back how long he had stood there she did not know nor did he say the muttered exclamations which had escaped her the irrepressible cry of despair she had given when she first recognized the identity of the stranger may have reached him where he sat at the other end of the room and drawn him insensibly forward till he could overlook her shoulder as she read and taste with her the horror of these revelations which yet were working so beneficent a result for him and his it may have been so and it may have been that he had not made his move till he saw her attitude change and her head drooped disconsolately at the reading of the last line she did not ask as i have said nor did he tell her but when upon feeling his hand upon her shoulder she turned he was there and while his lips failed to speak his eyes were eloquent and their questions single and imperative what do you think of them now they seemed to ask and rising to her feet she met him with a smile ghastly perhaps with the lividness of the shadows through which he had been groping but encouraging withal and soothing beyond measure to his anxious and harassed soul. Oliver is innocent, she declared, turning once more to lay her hand upon the sheets containing his naive confession. The dastard who could shoot his host for plunder is capable of a second crime holding out a similar inducement. Nothing now will ever make me connect Oliver with the crime at the bridge. As you said, he was simply near enough the hollow to toss into it the stick he had been whittling on his way from the oak tree. I am his advocate from this minute. Her eyes were still resting mechanically upon that last page lying spread out before her, and she did not observe in its full glory the first gleam of triumphant joy which, in all probability, Judge Ostrander's countenance had shown in years. Nor did he see in the glad confusion of the moment the quick shudder with which she lifted her trembling hand away from those papers and looked up, squarely at last, into his transfigured visage. "'Oh, Judge,' she murmured, bursting into a torrent of tears, "'how you must have suffered to feel so great a relief!' Then she was still, very still, and waited for him to speak. "'I suffered,' he presently proceeded to state because of the knowledge which had come to me of the scandal with which circumstances threatened us oliver had confided to me after the trial mind not before the unfortunate fact of his having been in possession of the stick during those few odd minutes preceding the murder he had also told me how he had boasted once and in a big crowd too of his intention to do etheridge he had meant nothing by the phrase beyond what anybody means who mingles boasting with temper but it was a nasty point of corroborative evidence and heartbreaking as it was for me to part with him i felt that his future career would be furthered by a fresh start in another town you see he continued a faint blush dyeing his old cheek old in sorrow not in years i am revealing mysteries of my past life 
which I have hitherto kept strictly within my own breast. I cannot do this without shame, because, while in the many serious conversations we have had on this subject, I have always insisted upon John Scoville's guilt. I have never allowed myself to admit the least fact which would in any way compromise Oliver. A cowardly attitude for a judge, you will say, and you are right. But for a father, Mrs. Scoville, I love my boy. I... What's that? The front doorbell was ringing. In a flash, Deborah was out of the room. It was as if she had flown with unnecessary eagerness to answer a bidding which, after all, Ruther could have easily attended to. It struck him aghast for the instant. Then he began slowly to gather up the papers before him and carry them back into the other room. Had he instead made straight for the doorway leading to the front of the house, he would have come upon the figure of Deborah standing alone, and with her face pressed in anguish and unspeakable despair against the lintel. Something had struck her heart and darkened her soul since that exalted moment in which she cried, Henceforth I will be Oliver's advocate. When the judge at last came forth, it was at Ruther's bidding. A gentleman wished to see him in the parlor. This was so unprecedented, even of late when the ladies did receive some callers, that he stopped short after his first instinctive step to ask her if the gentleman had given his name. She said no, but added that he was not alone, that he had a very strange and not very nice-looking person with him, whom Mother insisted should remain in the hall. Mother requests you to see the gentleman, Judge Ostrander. She said you would wish to, if you once saw the person accompanying him. With a dark glance, not directed against her, however, the judge bade her run away to the kitchen, and as far from all these troubles as she could. Then, locking his door behind him as he always did, he strode towards the front. He found Deborah standing guard, over an ill-conditioned fellow whose slouching figure slouched still more under his eye, but gave no other acknowledgment of his presence. Passing him without a second look, Judge Ostrander entered the parlor where he found no less a person than Mr. Black awaiting him. There was no bad blood between these two whatever, their past relations or present suspicions, and they were soon shaking hands with every appearance of mutual cordiality. The judge was especially courteous. I am glad, said he, of any occasion which brings you again under my roof, though from the appearance of your companion I judge the present one to be of no very agreeable character. He's honest enough, muttered Black, with a glance towards Deborah, for the understanding of which the judge held no key. Then, changing the subject, you had a very unfortunate experience this afternoon, Allow me to express my regret at an outbreak so totally unwarranted. A grumble came from the hall without. Evidently his charge, if we may so designate the fellow he had brought there, had his own ideas on this subject. Quiet out there, shouted Mr. Black. Mrs. Scoville, you need not trouble yourself to stand over Mr. Flanagan any longer. I'll look after him. She bowed and was turning away when the judge intervened. 
is there any objection he asked to mrs scoville's remaining present at this interview none whatever answered the lawyer then mrs scoville may i request you to come in if she hesitated it was but natural exhaustion is the obvious result of so many excitements and that she was utterly exhausted was very apparent mr black cast her a commiserating smile but the judge only noticed that she entered the room at his bidding and sat down by the window he was keying himself up to sustain a fresh excitement he was as exhausted as she possibly more so he had a greater number of wearing years to his credit judge i'm your friend thus mr black began thinking you must wish to know who started the riotous procedure which disgraced our town to-day i have brought the ringleader here to answer for himself that is if you wish to question him judge ostrander wheeled about gave the man a searching look and failing to recognize him as any one he had ever seen before beckoned him in i suppose said he when the lounging and insolent figure was fairly before their eyes that this is not the first time you have been asked to explain your enmity to my long absent son now i've had my talk wherever and whenever i took the notion oliver ostrander hit me once i was just a little chap then and meaning no harm to anyone i kept a pestering of him and he hit me he'd a better have hit a feller who hadn't my memory i've never forgiven that hit and i never will that's why i'm hitting him now it's just my turn that's all your turn your turn and what do you think has given you an opportunity to turn on him i'm not in the talking mood just now the fellow drawled frankly insolent not only in his tone but in his bearing to all present nor can you make it worth my while you gents i'll not take money i'm an honest hard-working man who can earn his own living and you can't pay me to keep still or to go away from shelby a day sooner than i want to i was going away but i gave it up when they told me that things were beginning to look black against old ostrander that a woman had come into town who was a stirring up things generally about that old murder for which a feller had already been electrocuted and knowing something myself about that murder and old ostrander i well i stayed the quiet threat the suggested possibility the attack which wraps itself in vague uncertainty are ever the most effective as his raucous voice dry with sinister purpose which no man could shake died out in an offensive drawl mr black edged a step nearer the judge before he sprang and caught the young fellow by the coat collar and gave him a very vigorous shake see here he threatened behave yourself and treat the judge like a gentleman or or what the bulldog mouth sneered see here yourself he now shouted as the lawyer's hands unloosed and he stood panting i'm not a feared of you sir nor of the judge nor of the lady nother 
I know something I do, and when I get ready to tell it, we'll just see whose coat collar they'll be handling. I came because I wanted to see the inside of the house old Oster and his father doesn't think him good enough to live in. It's grand, but this part here isn't the whole of it. There is a door somewhere which nobody never opens unless it's the judge there. I'd like to see what's behind that air door. If it's something to make a good story out of, I might be got to keep quiet about this other thing. I don't know, but I might. The swagger with which he said this, the confidence in himself, which he showed and the reliance he so openly put in the something he knew, but could not be induced to tell, acted so strongly upon Mr. Black's nerves that he leaped towards him again, evidently with the intention of dragging him from the house. But the judge was not ready for this. The judge had gained a new lease of life in the last half hour, and he felt no fear of the sullen bill-poster for all his sly innuendos. He therefore hindered the lawyer from his purpose by a quick gesture of so much dignity and resolve that even the lout himself was impressed and dropped some of his sullen bravado. I have something to say to this fellow, he announced, looking anywhere but at the drooping figure in the window, which ought, above all things in the world, to have engaged his attention. Perhaps he does not know his folly. Perhaps he thinks, because I was thrown aback today by those public charges against my son, and a string of insults for which no father could be prepared, that I am seriously disturbed over the position into which such unthinking men as himself have pushed Mr. Oliver Ostrander. I might be, if there were truth in these charges, for any serious reason for connecting my upright and honorable son with the low crime of a highwayman, but there is not. I aver it, and so will this lady here, whom you have doubtless recognized for the one who has stirred this matter up. You can bring no evidence to show guilt on my son's part. These words he directed straight at the discomfited poster of bills, because there is no evidence to bring. Mr. Black's eyes sparkled with admiration. He could not have used this method with the lad, but he recognized the insight of the man who could. Bribes were a sign of weakness. So were suggested force and counterattack. But scorn... A calm ignoring of the power of anyone to seriously shake Oliver Ostrander's established position that might rouse wrath and bring a vowel. Certainly it had shaken the man. He looked much less aggressive and self-confident than before. However, though impressed, he was not yet ready to give in. Shuffling about with his feet, but not yet shrinking from an encounter few men of his stamp would have cared to subject themselves to. He answered with a remark delivered with a little more civility than any of his previous ones. What you call evidence may not be the same as I calls evidence. If you're satisfied at thinking my word's no good, that's your business. I know how I should feel if I was old Ostrander's father and knew what I know. Let him go spoke up a wavering voice. It was Deborah's. But the judge was deaf to the warning. Deborah's voice had but reminded him of Deborah's presence. Its tone had escaped him. 
he was too engrossed in the purpose he had in mind to notice shades of inflection. But Mr. Black had, in quickest thought, he echoed her request. He is forgetting himself. Let him go, Judge Ostrander. But that astute magistrate, wise in all other causes but his own, was no more ready now than before to do this. In a moment, he conceded, let me first make sure that this man understands me. I have said that there exists no evidence against my son. I do not mean that there may not be supposed evidence. That is more than probable. No suspicion could have been felt, and none of these outrageous charges made without that. He was unfortunate enough not only to have been in the ravine that night, but to have picked up Scoville's stick and carried it towards the bridge, whittling it as he went. But his connection with the crime ends there. He dropped the stick before he came to where the wood path joins Factory Road, and another hand than his raised it against Etheridge. This I aver, and this the lady here will aver. You have probably already recognized her. If not, allow me to tell you that she is the lady whose efforts have brought back this case to the public mind. Mrs. Scoville, the wife of John Scoville, and the one of all others, who has the greatest interest in proving her husband's innocence. If she says that after the most careful inquiry and a conscientious reconsideration of this case, she has found herself forced to come to the conclusion that justice has already been satisfied in this matter. You'll believe her, won't you? I don't know, drawled the man, a low and cunning expression lighting up his ugly countenance. She wants to marry her daughter to your son. Any live dog is better than a dead one. I guess her opinion don't go for much. Recoiling before a cynicism that pierced with unerring skill the one joint in his armor he knew to be vulnerable, the judge took a minute in which to control his rage, and then addressing the half-averted figure in the window said, Mrs. Scoville, will you assure this man that you have no expectations of marrying your daughter to Oliver Ostrander? With a slow movement more suggestive of despair than any she had been seen to make since the hour of her indecision had first struck, she shifted in her seat and finally faced them with the assertion, Ruther Scoville will never marry Oliver Ostrander. Whatever my wishes or willingness in the matter, she herself is so determined, not because she does not believe in his integrity, for she does, but because she will not unite herself to one whose prospects in life are more to her than her own happiness. The fellow stared, then laughed. <laughs> She's a good un, he sneered. And you believe that, Bosch? Mr. Black could no longer contain himself. I believe you to be the biggest rascal in town, he shouted. Get out, or I won't answer for myself. Ladies are not to be treated in this manner. Did he remember his own rough handling of the sex on the witness stand? I didn't ask to see the ladies, protested Flanagan, turning with a slinking gait towards the door. If they had only let him go, 
if the judge in his new self-confidence had not been so anxious to deepen the effect and make any future repetition of the situation impossible. "'You understand, the lady,' he interposed, with the quiet dignity which was so imposing on the bench. "'She has no sympathy with your ideas and no faith in your conclusions. She believes absolutely in my son's innocence.' "'Do you, ma'am?' The man had turned, and was surveying her with the dogged impudence of his class. I'd like to hear you say it, if you don't mind, ma'am. Perhaps then I'll believe it. I, she began, trembling so, that she failed to reach her feet, although she made one spasmodic effort to do so. I believe, oh, I feel ill. It's been too much. I, her head fell forward, and she turned herself quite away from them all. "'You see, she ain't so eager, Judge, as you thought,' laughed the bill-poster, with a clumsy bow he evidently meant to be sarcastic. "'Oh, what have I done?' moaned Deborah, starting up as though she would fling herself after the retreating figure, now halfway down the hall. She saw in the look of the judge as he forcibly stopped her and heard in the lawyer's whisper as he bounded past them both to see the fellow out. Useless! Nothing will bridle him now! And finding no support for her despairing spirit either on earth or as she thought in heaven, she collapsed where she sat and fell unnoticed to the floor, where she lay prone at the feet of the equally unconscious figure of the judge, fixed in another attack of its peculiar complaint. And thus the lawyer found them when he returned from closing the gate behind Flanagan. End of chapter 25 What do you think of him now? Chapter 26 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 26 The Telegram I cannot say anything. I cannot do anything till I have had a few words with Mrs. Scoville. How soon do you think I can speak to her? Not very soon. Her daughter says she is quite worn out. Would it not be better to give her a rest for tonight, Judge? The Judge, now quite recovered, but strangely shrunk and wan, showed no surprise at this request, odd as it was on the lips of this honest but somewhat crabbed lawyer but answered out of the fullness of his own heart and from the depths of his preoccupation. My necessity is greater than hers. The change I saw in her is inexplicable. One moment she was all fire and determination, satisfied of Oliver's innocence and eager to proclaim it. The next, but you were with us, you witnessed her hesitation, felt its force and what its effect was upon that damnable scamp who has our honor the honor of the Ostranders under his tongue. Something must have produced this change. What, good friend, what? I don't know any more than you do, Judge, but I think you are mistaken about the previous nature of her feelings. I noticed that she was not at peace with herself when she came into the room. What's that? The tone was short, and for the first time irritable. 
the change if there was a change was not so sudden as you think she looked troubled and as i thought irresolute when she came into the room you don't know her you don't know what passed between us she was all right then but go to her black she must have recovered by this time ask her to come here for a minute i won't detain her i will wait for her warning knock right here allinson black was a harsh man but he had a soft streak in him a streak which had been much developed of late where he loved he could be extraordinarily kind and he loved had loved for years in his own way which was not a very demonstrative one this man whom he was now striving to serve but a counter-affection was making difficulties for him just at this minute against all probability many would have said possibility deborah scoville had roused in this hard nature a feeling which he was not yet ready to name even to himself but which nevertheless stood very decidedly in his way when the judge made this demand which meant further distress to her but the judge had declared his necessity to be greater than hers and after mr black had subjected him to one of his most searching looks he decided that this was so and quietly departed upon his errand the judge left alone sat a brooding figure in his great chair with no light in heart or mind to combat the shadows of approaching night settling heavier and heavier upon the room and upon himself with every slow passing and intolerable minute at last when the final ray had departed and darkness reigned supreme there came a low knock on the door then a troubled cry oh judge are you here i am here alone and so dark i am always alone and it is always dark is there any one with you no sir shall i make a light no light is the door quite shut no judge shut it there came the sound of a hand fumbling over the panels then a quick snap it is shut she said don't come any nearer it is not necessary a pause then the quick question ringing hollow from the darkness why have your doubts returned why are you no longer the woman you were when not an hour ago and in this very spot you cried i will be oliver's advocate then as no answer came as minutes passed and still no answer came he spoke again and added i know that you were ill and exhausted broken between duty and sympathy but you must answer me mrs scoville my affairs won't wait i must know the truth and all the truth before this day is over you shall her voice sounded hollow too and oh how weary you allowed the document you showed me to remain a little too long before my eyes that last page need i say it say it shows shows changes judge ostrander some words have been erased and new ones written in they are not many but 
I understand. I do not blame you, Deborah. The words came after a pause, and very softly, almost as softly as her own, but which had sounded its low knell of doom through the darkness. Too many stumbling blocks in your way, Deborah, too much to combat. The most trusting heart must give way under such a strain. That page was tampered with. I tampered with it myself. I am not expert at forgery. I had better have left it as he wrote it. Then after another silence he added, with a certain vehemence, We will struggle no longer, either you or I. The boy must come home. Prepare Ruther, or if you think best, provide a place for her where she will be safe from the storm which bids fair to wreck us here. No, don't speak. Just ask Mr. Black to return, will you? Judge, I understand. Mr. Black, Deborah. Slowly she moved away and began to grope for the door. As her hand fell on the knob, she thought she heard a sob in those impenetrable depths behind her. But when she listened again, all was still. Still, as if merciful death and not weary life gave its significance to the surrounding gloom. Shuddering, she turned the knob and paused again for rebuff or command. Neither came. And realizing that spoken once, the judge would not speak again, she slipped softly away, and the door swung to after her. When Mr. Black re-entered the study, it was to find the room lighted, and the judge bent over the table, writing. "'You are going to send for Oliver?' he queried. The judge hesitated. They motioning Black to sit, said abruptly, "'What is Andrew's attitude in this matter?' Andrew's was Shelby's district attorney. Black's answer was like the man. "'I saw him for one minute an hour ago. I think at present—' He is inclined to be both deaf and dumb. But if he's driven to action, he will act. And judge, this man Flanagan isn't going to stop where he is. Black, be merciful to my misery. What does this man know? Have you any idea? No, judge, I haven't. He's as tight as a drum and as noisy. It is possible, just possible— that he's as empty. A few days will tell. I cannot wait for a few days. I hardly feel as if I could wait a few hours. Oliver must come, even if, if the consequences are likely to be fatal. An Ostrander once accused cannot skulk. Oliver has been accused, and send that, he quickly cried, pulling forward the telegram he had been writing. Mr. Black picked up the telegram and read, Come at once, imperative, no delay, and no excuse. Archibald Ostrander. Mrs. Scoville will supply the address, continued the poor father. You will see that it goes, and that its sending is kept secret. The answer, if any is sent, had better be directed to your office. What do you say, Black? I am your friend, right straight through, Judge. Your friend. And my boy's adviser? You wish that? 
very much. Then there's my hand on it, unless he wishes a change when we see him. He will not wish any change. I don't know. I'm a surly fellow, Judge. I have known you all these years, yet I've never expressed, never said what I even find it hard to say now that, that my esteem is something more than esteem, that, that I'll do anything for you, Judge. I, we won't talk of that, Black. Tell Mrs. Scoville to keep me informed and bring me any message that may come. The boy, even if he leaves the first thing in the morning, cannot get here before tomorrow night. Not possibly. He will telegraph. I shall hear from him. Oh, God, the hours I must wait. My boy, my boy. It was nature's irrepressible cry. Black pressed his hand and went out with the telegram. End of chapter 26 The Telegram Chapter 27 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Book 3 The Door of Mystery Chapter 27 he must be found. Three hours later, an agitated confab took place at the gate, or rather, between the two front gates. Mr. Black had rung for admittance, and Mrs. Scoville had answered the call. In the constrained interview which followed, these words were said. One moment, Mrs. Scoville, how can I tell the judge? Young Ostrander is gone, flew the city, and I can get no clue to his whereabouts. Some warning of what is happening here may have reached him, or he may be simply following impulses consequent upon his personal disappointments. But the fact is just this. He asked for two weeks' leave to go west upon business, and he's been gone three. Meanwhile, no word has come nor can his best friends tell the place of his destination. I have been burning the telegraph wires ever since the first dispatch, and this is the result. Poor Judge Ostrander, then in lower and still more pathetic tones, poor Ruther. Where is Ruther? At Miss Weeks. I had to command her to leave me alone with the judge. It's the first time I ever spoke unkindly to her. Shall I tell the judge the result of his telegram, or will you? Have you the messages with you? He bundled them into her hand. I will hand them in to him. We can do nothing less and nothing more. Then if he wants you, I will telephone. Mrs. Scoville. She felt his hand laid softly on her shoulder. Yes, Mr. Black? There is someone else in this matter to consider besides Judge Ostrander. Ruther, oh, don't I know it. She's not out of my mind a moment. Ruther is young and has a gallant soul. I mean you, Mrs. Scoville, you. You are not to succumb to this trial. You have a future, a bright future, or should have. Do not endanger it by giving up all your strength now. It's precious, that strength, or would be. He broke off. She began to move away. 
overhead in the narrow space of sky, visible to them from where they stood, the stars burned brightly. Some instinct made them look up. As they did so, their hands met. Then a gruff sound broke the silence. It was Ellison's black voice, uttering a grim farewell. He must be found! Oliver must be found! How the words rung in her ears! She had handed in the message to the waiting father. She had uttered a word or two of explanation, and then, at his request, had left him. But his last cry followed her. He must be found. When she told it to Mr. Black the next morning, he looked serious. Pride? Or hope? he asked. Desperation, she responded, with a guilty look about her. Possibly. Some hope is in it, too. Perhaps he thinks that any charge of this nature must fall before Oliver's manly appearance. Whatever he thinks, there is but one thing to do. Find Oliver. Mrs. Scoville, the police have started upon that attempt. I got the tip this morning. We must forestall them. To satisfy the judge, Oliver must come of his own accord to face these charges. It's a brave stock. If Oliver gets his father's telegram, he will come. But how are we to reach him? We are absolutely in the dark. If I could go to Detroit, I might strike some clue, but I cannot leave the judge. Mr. Black, he told me this morning when I carried in his breakfast that he should see no one and go nowhere till I brought him word that Oliver was in the house. The hermit life has begun again. What shall we do? Advise me in this emergency, for I feel as helpless as a child, as a lost child. They were standing far apart in the little front parlor, and he gave no evidence of wishing to lessen the space between them. But he gave her a look as she said this, which, as she thought it over afterwards, held in its kindly flame something which had never shone upon her before, whether as maid, wife, or widow. But while she noticed it, she did not dwell upon it now, only upon the words which followed it. You say you cannot go to Detroit. Shall I go? Mr. Black, court is adjourned. I know of nothing more important than Judge Ostrander's peace of mind. Unless it is yours, I will go if you say so. Will it avail? Let me think. I knew him well, and yet not well enough to know where he would be most likely to go under impulse. There is someone who knows him better than you do. His father? No. Ruther? Oh, she mustn't be told. Yes, she must. She's our one adviser. Go for her, or send me. It won't be necessary. That's her ring at the gate. But, oh, Mr. Black... Think again before you trouble this fragile child of mine with doubts and questions which make her mother tremble. Has she shown the greater weakness yet? No, but she has sources of strength which you lack. She believes absolutely in Oliver's integrity. It will carry her through. Please let her in, Mr. Black. I will wait here while you tell her. Mr. Black hurried from the room when his form became visible on the walk without. 
Deborah watched him from where she stood far back in the room. Why? Was this swelling of her impetuous heart in the midst of such suspense an instinct of thankfulness? A staff had been put in her hand, rough to the touch, but firm under pressure, and she needed such a staff. Yes, it was thankfulness, but she forgot gratitude and every lesser emotion in watching Ruth's expression as the two came up the path. The child was radiant, and the mother, thus prepared, was not surprised when the young girl, running into her arms, burst out with the glad cry, "'Oliver is no longer in Detroit, but he's wanted here, and Mr. Black and I are going to find him. I think I know where to look. Get me ready, mother dear, we are going tonight.' "'You are going tonight?' This was said after the first moment of ebullition had passed. "'Where, Ruther? You have not been corresponding with Oliver. How should you know where to look for him?' Then Ruther told her story. "'Mr. Ostrander and I were talking very seriously one day. It was before we came definitely engaged, and he seemed to feel very dispirited and uncertain of the future.' There was a treatise he wanted to write, and for this he could get no opportunity in Detroit. I need time, he said, and complete seclusion. And then he made this remark. If ever life becomes too much for me, I shall go to one of two places and give myself up to this task. And what are the places, I asked. One is Washington, he answered, where I can have the run of a great library and the influence of the most inspiring surroundings in the world. The other is a little lodge in a mountaintop above Lake Placid. Tempest Lodge, they call it, perhaps in contrast to the peacefulness it dominates. And he described this last place with so much enthusiasm, and weighed so carefully the advantages of the one spot against the other for the absorbing piece of work that he contemplated, that I am sure that if we do not find him in Washington— we certainly shall in the Adirondacks. Let us hope that it will be in Washington, replied the lawyer, with a keen remembrance of the rigors of an Adirondack fall, rigors of which Ruther, in her enthusiasm, if not in her ignorance, appeared to take little count. And now, he went on, this is how I hope to proceed. We will go first to Washington, and, if unsuccessful there, to Tempest Lodge. We will take Miss Weeks with us, for I am sure that I could not, without some such assistance, do justice to this young lady's comfort. If you have a picture of Mr. Ostrander as he looks now, I hope you will take it, Miss Scoville. With that, and the clue to his intentions, which you have given me, I have no doubt that we shall find him within the week. But, objected Deborah, if you know where to look for him, why take the child? Why go yourself? Why not telegraph to these places? His answer was a look, quick, sharp, and enigmatical enough to require explanation. He could not give it to her then. But later, when Ruther had left them, he said, Men who fly their engagements and secrete themselves with or without a pretext, are not so easily reached. We have to surprise Oliver Ostrander, 
in order to place his father's message in his hands. You may be right. But, Ruther, can she stand the excitement, the physical strain? You have the harder task of the two, Mrs. Scoville. Leave the little one to me. She shall not suffer. Deborah's response was eloquent. It was only a look, but it made his harsh features glow and his hard eyes soften. Allison Black had waited long, but his day of romance had come, and possibly hers also. But his thoughts, if not his hopes, received a check when, with every plan made, and Miss Weeks, as well as Ruther, in trembling anticipation of the journey, he encountered the triumphant figure of Flanagan coming out of police headquarters. His jaunty air, his complacent nod, admitted of but one explanation. He had told his story to the chief authorities and been listened to. Proof that he had something of actual moment to tell them, something which the district attorney's office might feel bound to take up. Allison Black felt the shock of this discovery, but was glad of the warning it gave him. Plans which had seemed both simple and natural before, he now saw must be altered to suit the emergency. He could no longer hope to leave town with his little party without attracting unwelcome attention. They might even be followed, for whatever Flanagan may have told the police, there was one thing he had been unable to impart, and that was where to look for Oliver. Only Ruther held that clue, and if they once suspected this fact, she would certainly become the victim of their closest surveillance. Little Ruther, therefore, must not accompany him on his quest, but hold herself quite apart from it, or better still, be made to act as a diversion to draw off the scent from the chief actor, which was himself. The idea was good, and went to be immediately carried out. Continuing on to his office, he called up Miss Weeks. "'Are you there?' he asked. "'Yes, she was there. Alone?' "'Yes, Ruther was home packing. Nobody around?' "'Nobody. No one listening on the line.' "'She was sure not. "'Very well. Listen closely, and act quickly.' You are not to go to—I will not mention the name—and you are not to wait for me. You are to start at the hour named, but you will buy tickets for Atlantic City, where you must get what accommodations you can. Our little friend needs to be taken out of town, not on business, you understand. But to escape the unpleasantness here, and to get such change as will distract her mind. Her mother cannot leave her duties— so you have undertaken to accompany the child. The rest leave to me. Have you understood all this? Yes, perfectly, but not another word, Miss Weeks. The change will do our little friend good. Trust my judgment and ask her to do the same. Above all, do not be late for the train. Telephone at once for a cab and forget everything but the pleasant trip before you. Oh, one minute. There is an article you had better send me. I hope you can guess what it is. I think I can. You know the city I am going to. Mark the package, general delivery, 
and let me have it soon. That's all. He hung up the receiver. At midnight, he started for Washington. He gave a political reason and excuse for this trip. He did not expect to be believed, but the spy, if such had been sent, had taken the earlier train on which the two ladies had left for Atlantic City. He knew every man who got on board of the same train as himself, and none of them were in league with police headquarters. End of chapter 27 He Must Be Found Chapter 28 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 28 The First Effort Leaves from Allison's Black's Notebook Found by Ruther some months later In a very queer place, viz. Her mother's jewel box. At the new Willard, awaiting two articles, Oliver's picture and a few lines in the judge's writing requesting his son's immediate return. Meanwhile, I have made no secret of my reason for being here. All my inquiries at the desk have shown it to be particularly connected with a certain bill now before Congress, in which Shelby is vitally interested. Perhaps I can further the interests of this bill in off minutes. I am willing to. The picture is here as well as the name of the hotel where the two women are staying. I have spent five minutes studying the face I must be able to recognize at first glance in any crowd. It's not a bad face. I can see his mother's looks in him. But it is not the face I used to know. Trouble develops a man. There's a fellow here who rouses my suspicions. No one knows him. I don't myself but he's strangely interested in me. If he's from Shelby, in other words, if he's from the detective bureau there, I've led him a chase today which must have greatly bewildered him. I'm not slow, and I'm not above mixing things. From the Cairo where our present congressman lives, I went to the Treasury, then to the White House, and then to the Smithsonian, with a few newspaper offices thrown in, and some hotels where I took pains that my interviews should not be too brief. When quite satisfied that by these various and somewhat confusing peregrinations I had thrown off any possible shadower, I fetched up at the library where I lunched. Then, as I thought the time had come for me to enjoy myself, I took a walk about the great building, ending up with the reading room. Here, I asked for a book on a certain abstruse subject. Of course, it was not in my line, but I looked wise and spoke the name glibly. When I sat down to consult it, the man who brought it threw me a short glance, which I chose to think peculiar. You don't have many readers for this volume, I ventured. He smiled and answered, Just send it back to the shelves. It's had a steady reader for ten days. Before that? Nobody. Is this your study reader? I asked, showing him the photograph I drew from my pocket. He stared, but said nothing. He did not have to. In a state of strange satisfaction, I opened the book. It was Greek, if not worse, to me, but I meant to read a few paragraphs for the sake of appearances, and was turning over the pages in search of a promising chapter when, talk of remarkable happenings, 
There, in the middle of the book, was a card, his card, left as a marker, no doubt, and on this card, an address hastily scribbled in lead pencil. It only remained for me to find that the hotel designated in this address was a Washington one. For me to recognize this in simple, but strangely opportune occurrence, a coincidence, or, as you would say, an act of providence, as startling as those we read of in books. The first man I accosted in regard to the location of this hotel said that there was none of that name in Washington. The next, that he thought there was, but that he could not tell me where to look for it. The third, that I was within ten blocks of its doors. Did I walk? No, I took a taxi. I thought of your impatience and became impatient too. But when I got there, I stopped hurrying. I waited a full half-hour in the lobby to be sure that I had not been followed before I approached the desk and asked to see Mr. Ostrander. No such person was in the hotel, or had been. Then I brought out my photograph. The face was recognized, but not as that of a guest. This seemed a puzzle, but after thinking it over for a while, I came to this conclusion— that the address I saw written on the card was not his own, but that of some friend he had casually met. This put me in a quandary. The house was full of young men. How pick out the friend? Besides, this friend was undoubtedly a transient and gone long ago. My hope seemed likely to end in smoke, my great coincidence to prove valueless. I was so convinced of this that I started to go. Then I remembered you and remained. I even took a room, registering myself for the second time that day, which formality over, I sat down in the office to write letters. Oliver Ostrander is in Washington, that's something. I cannot sleep. Indeed, I may see that this is the first time in my life when I failed to lose my cares the moment my head struck the pillow. The cause I will now relate. I had finished and mailed my letter to you, and was just in the act of sealing another, when I heard a loud salutation uttered behind me, and turning was witness to the meeting of two young men, who had run upon each other in the open doorway. The one going out was a stranger to me, and I hardly noticed him, but the one coming in was Oliver Ostrander, for his photograph greatly belied him, and in my joy at an encounter so greatly desired— but so entirely unhoped for, I was on the point of rising to intercept him, when some instinct of precaution led me to glance about me first for the individual who had shown such a persistent interest in me from the moment of my arrival. There he sat, not a dozen chairs away, ostensibly reading, but with a quick eye ready for me the instant I gave him the slightest chance. A detective, as certainly as I was black, the lawyer." What was I to do? The boy was leaving town. Was even then on his way to the station as his whole appearance, and such words as he let fall amply denoted. If I let him go, would another such chance of delivering his father's message be given me? Should I not lose him altogether, while if I approached him, or betrayed in any way my interest in him, the detective would recognize his prey, and, if he did not arrest him on the spot, would never allow him to return to Shelby unattended. 
this would be to defeat the object of my journey. And recalling the judge's expression at parting, I dared not hesitate. My eyes returned with seeming unconcern to the letter I was holding, and the detectives to his paper. When we both looked up again, the two young men had quit the building, and the business which had brought me to Washington was at an end. But I am far from being discouraged. A fresh start with the prospect of Bruce's companionship inspires me with more hope for my next venture. End of chapter 28 The First Effort Chapter 29 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 29 There is but one thing to do. A night of stars, seen through swaying treetops, whose leaves crisping to their fall, murmur gently of vanished hopes and approaching death. Below, a long, low building with a lighted window here and there, surrounded by a heavy growth of trees, which are but the earnest of the illimitable stretch of the Adirondack woods, which painted darkness on the encircling horizon. In the air, one other sound, beside the restless murmur I have mentioned, the lap, lap of the lake, whose waters bathed the bank which supported this building. Such the scene without. Within, Ruther, seated in the glow of a hospitable fire of great logs, talking earnestly to Mr. Black. As they were placed, he could see her much better than she could see him, his back being to the blaze and she in its direct glare. He could, therefore, study her features without offense, and this he did, steadily and with deep interest, all the while she was talking. He was looking for signs of physical weakness or fatigue, but he found none. The pallor of her features was a natural pallor, and in their expression new forces were becoming apparent, which give him encouragement rather than anxiety for the adventure whose most trying events lay still before them. Crouching low on the hearth could be seen the diminutive figure of Miss Weeks. She had no time to waste, even in a solitude as remote as this and was busy crocheting busily by the firelight. Her earnestness gave character to her features, which sometimes lacked significance. Ruther loved to glance at her from time to time as she continued her conversation with Mr. Black. This is what she was saying. I cannot point to any one man of the many who have been about us ever since we started north. But that we have been watched and our route followed, I feel quite convinced. So does Miss Weeks. But... As you saw, no one besides ourselves left the cars at this station, and I am beginning to hope that we shall remain unmolested till we can take the trip to Tempest Lodge. How far is it, Mr. Black? Twenty-five miles and over a very rough mountain road. Did I not confidently expect to find Oliver there, I should not let you undertake this ride. But the inquiries I have just made led me to hope for the best results. I was told that yesterday a young man bound for Tempest Lodge stopped to buy a large basket of supplies at the village below us. I could not learn his name, and I saw no one who could describe him, 
but the fact that any one not born in these parts should choose to isolate himself so late in the year as this in a place considered inaccessible after the snow flies has roused much comment that looks as if as if as if it were oliver so it does and if you feel that you can ride so far i will see that horses are saddled for us at an early hour to-morrow morning i can ride but will oliver be pleased to see us at tempest lodge mr black i had an experience in utica which makes it very hard for me to contemplate obtruding myself upon him without some show of permission on his part we met that is i saw him and he saw me but he gave me no opportunity that is he did not do what he might have done had he felt had he thought it best to exchange a word with me where was this you were not long in utica only one night but that was long enough for me to take a walk down one of the principal thoroughfares and it was during this walk i saw him he was on the same side of the street as myself and rapidly coming my way but on his eye meeting mine i could not mistake that unconscious flash of recognition he wheeled suddenly aside into a cross street where i dared not follow him of course he did not know what hung on even a momentary interview that it was not for myself i the firelight caught something new to shine upon a tear on lashes which yet refused to lower themselves mr black fidgeted then put out his hand and laid it softly on hers never mind he grumbled men are he didn't say what but it wasn't anything very complimentary you have this comfort said he the man at the lodge is undoubtedly oliver had he gone west he wouldn't have been seen in utica three days ago i have never had any doubt about that i expect to see him to-morrow but i shall find it hard to utter my errand quick enough there will be a minute when he may misunderstand me i dread that minute perhaps you can avoid it perhaps after you have positively identified him i can do the rest we will arrange it so if we can her eyes flashed with gratitude then took on a new expression she had chanced to glance again at miss weeks and miss weeks was not looking quite natural she was still crocheting or trying to but her attitude was constrained and her gaze fixed and that gaze was not on her work but directed towards a small object at her side which reuther recognized from its open lid to be the little lady's work-box something is the matter with miss weeks she confided in a low whisper to mr black don't turn she's going to speak but miss weeks did not speak she just got up and with a careless motion stood stretching herself for a moment then sauntered up to the table and began showing her work to reuther i've made a mistake she pettishly complained see if you can find out what's wrong and giving the work into reuther's hand she stood watching but with a face so pale that mr black was not astonished when she suddenly muttered in a very low tone don't move or show surprise the shade of the window is up and somebody is looking in from outside 
I saw his face reflected in the mirror of my workbox. It isn't anyone I know, but he was looking very fixedly this way, and may be looking yet. Now I am going to snatch my work. I don't think you're helping me one bit. She suited the action to the word, shook her head at Ruther, and went back to her old position on the hearth. I was afraid of it, murmured Ruther. If we take the ride tomorrow, it will not be alone. If, on the other hand, we delay our trip, we may be forestalled in the errand upon which so much depends. We are not the only ones who have heard of the strange young man at Tempest Lodge. The answer came with quick decision. There is but one thing for us to do. I will tell you what it is a little later. Go and sit on the hearth with Miss Weeks, and mind that you laugh and chat as if your minds were quite undisturbed. I am going to have a talk with our host. End of chapter 29. There is but one thing to do. Chapter 30 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 30 Tempest Lodge. What's that? That's the cry of a loon. How awful! Do they often cry like that? Not often in the night time. Ruther shuddered. Mr. Black regarded her anxiously. Had he done wrong to let her join him in this strange ride? "'Shall we go back and wait for broad daylight?' he asked. "'No, no, I could not bear the suspense of wondering "'whether all was going well and the opportunity being given you "'of seeing and speaking to him. "'We have taken such precautions, chosen so late, "'or, should I say so early a start, "'that I am sure we have outwitted the man who is so watchful of us. "'But if we go back, we cannot slip away from him again.' and Oliver will have to submit to an humiliation it is our duty to spare him. And the good judge, too. I don't care if the loons do cry. The night is beautiful. And it was. Had their hearts been in tune to enjoy it, a gibbous moon had risen, and, inefficient as it was to light up the recesses of the forest, it illumined the treetops and brought out the difference between earth and sky. The road, known to the horses, if not to themselves, extended like a black ribbon under their eyes, but the patches of light which fell across it at intervals took from it the uninterrupted gloom it must have otherwise had. Mr. Sloan, who was at once their guide and host, promised that dawn would be upon them before they reached the huge gully, which was the one dangerous feature of the road. But as yet there were no signs of dawn and to Ruther, as well as to Mr. Black, this ride through the heart of a wilderness in a darkness which might have been that of midnight by any other measure than that of the clock, had the effect of a dream in which one is only sufficiently in touch with past commonplaces to say, This is a dream and not reality. I shall soon wake. A night to remember to the end of one's days, an experience which did not seem real at the time, and was never looked back upon as real, and yet one with which neither of them would have been willing to part. Their guide had prophesied truly, heralded by that long cry of the loon, 
the dawn began to reveal itself in clearness of perspective and a certain indefinable stir in the still, shrouded spaces of the woods. Details began to appear where heretofore all had been mass. Pearl tints proclaimed the east, and presently these were replaced by a flush of delicate color deepening into rose, and the everyday world of the mighty forest was upon them with its night mystery gone. But not the romance of their errand, or the anxiety which both felt as to its ultimate fulfillment. This it had been easier to face when they themselves, as well as all about them, were but moving shadows in each other's eyes. Full sight brought full realization. However they might seek to cloak the fact, they could no longer disguise from themselves that the object of their journey might not be acceptable to the man in hiding at Tempest Lodge. Ruther's faith in him was strong, but even her courage faltered as she thought of the disgrace awaiting him, whatever the circumstances or however he might look upon his father's imperative command to return. But she did not draw rein, and the three continued to ride up and on. Suddenly, however, one of them showed disturbance. Mr. Sloan was seen to turn his head sharply, and in another moment his two companions heard him say, We are followed. Ride on and leave me to take a look. Instinctively they also glanced back before obeying. They were just rounding the top of an abrupt hill and expected to have an uninterrupted view of the road behind. But the masses of foliage were as yet too thick for them to see much but the autumnal red and yellow spread out before them. I hear them, I do not see them, remarked their guide. Two horses are approaching. How far are we now from the lodge? A half hour's ride. We are just at the opening of the gully. You will join us soon? As quickly as I make out who are on the horses behind us. Ruther and the lawyer rode on. Her cheeks had gained a slight flush, but otherwise she looked unmoved. He was less at ease than she, for he had less to sustain him. The gully, when they came to it, proved to be a formidable one. It was not only deep, but precipitous, descending with the sheerness of a wall directly down from the road into a basin of enormous size, where trees stood here and there in solitary majesty, amid an area of rock forbidding to the eye and suggestive of sudden and impassable chasms. It was like circumambulating the sinuous verge of a canyon, and for the two miles they rode along its edge, they saw no let-up in the steepness on one side or of the almost equally abrupt rise of towering rock on the other. It was Ruther's first experience of so precipitous a climb, and under other circumstances she might have been timid. But in her present heroic mood, it was all a part of her great adventure, and as such accepted. The lawyer eyed her with growing admiration. He had not miscalculated her pluck. As they were making a turn to gain the summit, they heard Mr. Sloan's voice behind them. Drawing in their horses, they greeted him eagerly when he appeared. Were you right? Are we followed? That's as may be. I didn't hear or see anything more. I waited, but nothing happened, so I came on. 
His words were surly and his looks sour. They therefore forbore to question him further, especially as their keenest interest lay ahead rather than behind them. They were nearing Tempest Lodge. As it broke upon their view, perched like an eagle's eyrie on the crest of a rising peak, they drew rein, and after a short consultation, Mr. Sloan wended his way up alone. He was a well-known man throughout the whole region, and would be likely to gain admittance if anyone could. But all wished the hour had been less early. However, somebody was up in the picturesque place. A small trail of smoke could be seen hovering above its single chimney, and promptly upon Mr. Sloan's approach, a rear door swung back, and an old man showed himself, but with no hospitable intent. On the contrary, he motioned the intruder back, and shouting out some very decided words, resolutely banged the door shut. Mr. Sloan turned slowly about. Bad luck, he commented, upon joining his companions. That was deaf Dan. He's got a warm nest here, and he's determined to keep it. No visitors wanted was what he shouted, and he didn't even hold out his hand when I offered him the letter. Give me the letter, said Ruther. He won't leave a lady standing out in the cold. Mr. Sloan handed over the judge's message and helped her down, and she in turn began to approach the place. As she did so, she eyed it with the curiosity of a hungry heart. It was a compact structure of closely cemented stone, built to resist gales and harbor a would-be recluse, even in an Adirondack winter. One end showed stacks of wood through its heavily glazed windows, and between the small stable and the west door there ran a covered way which ensured communication even when the snow lay high about the windows. The place had a history which she learned later. At present, all her thoughts were on its possible occupant and the very serious question of whether she would or would not gain admittance to him. Mr. Sloan had been repulsed from the west door. She would try the east. Oliver, if Oliver it were, was probably asleep. But she would knock and knock and knock. And if deaf Dan did not open, his master soon would. But when she found herself in face of this simple barrier, her emotion was so strong that she recoiled in spite of herself and turned her face about as if to seek strength for the magnificence of the outlook. But though this scene was one of splendor inconceivable, she did not see it. Her visions were all inner ones. But these were not without their strengthening power, as was soon shown. For presently she turned back and was lifting her hand to the door when it suddenly flew open and a man appeared before her. It was Oliver, Oliver unkept, and with signs upon him of a night's work of study or writing, but Oliver, her lover once, but now just a stranger into whose hand she must put this letter. She tried to stammer out her errand, but the sudden pallor, the starting eyes, the whole shocked, almost terrified appearance of the man she was facing stopped her. She forgot the surprise, the incredulity of mind with which he would naturally hail her presence at his door in a place so remote and of such inaccessibility. She only saw that his hands had gone up 
and out at sight of her, and to her sensitive soul this looked like a rebuff which, while expected, choked back her words and turned her faintly flushing cheek scarlet. "'It is not I,' burst from her lips in incoherent disclaimer of his possible thought. "'I'm just a messenger. Your father—it is you!' Quickly his hands passed across his eyes. "'How—then his glance, following hers, fell on the letter which she now remembered to hold out. "'It's a copy of a telegram,' she tremblingly explained, as he continued to gaze at it without reaching to take it. "'You could not be found in Detroit, and as it was important that you should receive this word from your father, I undertook to deliver it. I remembered your fondness for this place, and how you once said that this is where you would like to write your book, and so I came on a venture, but not alone.' Mr. Black is with me, and— Mr. Black? Who? What? He was still staring at his father's letter, and still had made no offer to take it. Read this first, said she. Then he woke to the situation. He took the letter, and drawing her inside, shut the door while he read it. She, trembling very much, did not dare to lift her eyes to watch its effect, but she was conscious— that his back and not his face was turned her way, and that the moment was the stillest one of her whole life. Then there came a rattling noise as he crushed the letter in his hand. "'Tell me what this means,' said he, but he did not turn his head as he made this request. "'Your father must do that,' was her gentle reply. "'I was only to deliver the letter. I came, we came.' thus early because we thought, we feared we should get no opportunity later to find you here alone. There seemed to be people on the road whom, whom you might feel obliged to entertain, and as your father cannot wait, he had wheeled about. His face confronted hers. It were a look she did not understand, and which made him seem a stranger to her. Involuntarily she took a step back. I must be going now, said she, and fell, her physical weakness triumphing at last over her willpower. End of chapter 30 Tempest Lodge Chapter 31 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 31 Escape Oliver! Where is Oliver? These were Ruther's first words, as, coming to herself, she perceived Mr. Black bending helplessly over her. The answer was brief, almost indifferent. Allenson Black was cursing himself for allowing her to come to this house alone. He was here a moment ago, when he saw you begin to give signs of life, he slid out. How do you feel, my, my dear? What will your mother say? But Oliver... She was on her feet now. She had been lying on some sort of couch. He must... Oh, I remember now. Mr. Black, we must go. I have given him his father's letter. We are not going till you have something to eat. Not a word. All... Why did his eye wander to the nearest window? And his words trail away into silence. 
Ruther turned to see. Oliver was in front, conversing earnestly with Mr. Sloan. As they looked, he dashed back into the rear of the house, and they heard his voice rise once or twice in some ineffectual commands to his deaf servant. Then there came a clatter and a rush from the direction of the stable, and they saw him flash by on a gaunt but fiery horse, and take with long bounds the road up which they had just labored. He had stopped to equip himself in some measure for this ride, but not the horse, which was without saddle or any sort of bridle but a halter strung about his neck. This was flight, or so it appeared to Mr. Sloan, as he watched the young man disappear over the brow of the hill. What Mr. Black thought was not so apparent. He had no wish to discourage Ruther, whose feeling was one of relief, as her first word showed. "'Oliver is gone. We shall not have to hurry now, and perhaps if I had a few minutes in which to rest.' She was on the verge of fainting again. And then Allison Black showed of what stuff he was made. In ten minutes he had bustled about the half-deserted building, and with the aid of the dazed and uncomprehending deaf-mute, managed to prepare a cup of hot tea and a plate of steaming eggs for the weary girl. After such an effort, Ruther felt obliged to eat, and she did, seeing which, the lawyer left her for a moment and went out to interview their guide. "'Where's the young lady?' this from Mr. Sloan. "'Eating something. Come in and have a bite, and let the horses eat, too. She must have a rest. The young fellow went off pretty quick, eh?' "'Yes.' The draw was one of doubt. But quickness don't count, fast or slow. He's on his way to capture, if that's what you want to know. What? We are followed, then? There are men on the road, too, as I told you before. He can't get by them, if that's what he wants to do. But I thought they fell back. We didn't hear them after you joined us. No, they didn't come on. They didn't have to. This is the only road down the mountain, and it's one you've got to follow or go tumbling over the precipice. All they've got to do is wait for him, and that's what I tried to tell him, but he just shook his arm at me and rode on. He might better have waited for company. Mr. Black cast a glance behind him, saw that the door of the house was almost closed, and ventured to put another question. What? Did he ask you when he came out here why we had chosen such an early hour to bring him his father's message? And what did you say? Well, I said that there was another fellow down my way awful eager to see him too, and that you were mortal anxious to get to him first. That was about it, wasn't it, sir? Yes, and how did he take that? He turned white and asked me just what I meant. Then I said that someone wanted him pretty bad, for early as it was, this stranger was up as soon as you, and had followed us into the mountains and might show up any time on the road. At which he gave me a stare, then plunged back into the house to get his hat and trot out his horse. I never saw quicker work. But it's no use. He can't escape those men. They know it or they wouldn't have stopped where they did, waiting for him. Mr. Black recalled the aspect of the gully, and decided that Mr. Sloan was right. 
there could be but one end to this adventure. Oliver would be caught in a manifest effort to escape, and the judge's cup of sorrow and humiliation would be full. He felt the shame of it himself, also the folly of his own methods, and of the part he had allowed Ruther to play. Beckoning to his host to follow him, he turned towards the house. "'Don't mention your fears to the young lady,' said he, "'at least not till we are well past the gully.' "'I shan't mention anything. Don't you be afeard of that.' And with a simultaneous effort difficult for both, they assumed a more cheerful air, and briskly entered the house. It was not until they were well upon the road back that Ruther ventured to speak of Oliver. She was riding as far from the edge of the precipice as possible. In descent it looked very formidable to her unaccustomed eye. "'This is a dangerous road for a man to ride bareback,' she remarked. "'I'm terrified when I think of it, Mr. Black. Why did he go off quite so suddenly?' Is there a train he is anxious to reach? Mr. Sloan, is there a train? Yes, miss, there is a train. Which he can get by riding fast? I've known it done. Then he is excusable. Yet her anxious glance stole ever and again to the dizzy verge towards which she now unconsciously urged her own horse till Mr. Black drew her aside. "'There is nothing to fear in that direction,' said he. "'Oliver's horse is to be trusted, if not himself. "'Cheer up, little one. "'We'll soon be on more level ground, "'and then for a quick ride and a speedy end to this suspense.' "'He was rewarded by a confiding look, "'after which they all fell silent. "'A half-hour's further descent, "'then a quick turn, and Mr. Sloan, "'who had ridden on before them, "'came galloping hastily back.' "'Wait a minute!' he admonished them, putting up his hand to emphasize the appeal. "'Oh, what now?' cried Ruther, but with a rising head instead of a sinking one. "'We will see,' said Mr. Black, hastening to meet their guide. "'What now?' he asked. "'Have they come together? Have the detectives got him?' "'No, not him. Only his horse. The animal has just trotted up, riderless.' "'Good God!' "'The child's instinct was true. He has been thrown.' "'No!' Mr. Sloan's mouth was close to the lawyer's ear. "'There is another explanation. If the fellow is game, and anxious enough to reach the train to risk his neck for it, there's a path he could have taken, which would get him there without his coming round this turn. I never thought it a possible thing till I saw his horse trotting on ahead of us without a rider.' Then, as Ruther came ambling up, "'Young lady, don't let me scare you, but it looks now as if the young man had taken a shortcut to the station, which, so far as I know, has never been taken but by one man before. If you will draw up closer, here, give me hold of your bridle. Now, look back along the edge of the precipice for about half a mile, and you will see shooting up from the gully a solitary tree whose topmost branch reaches within a few feet of the road above.' She looked. They were at the lower end of the gully, which curved up and away from this point like an enormous horseshoe. They could see the face of the precipice for miles. Yes, she suddenly replied, as her glance fell on the one red splash showing against the dull gray of the cliff. A leap from the road, if well-timed, would land a man among some very stalwart branches. It's a risk, and it takes nerve, 
but it succeeded once, and I dare say has succeeded again. But, but, if he didn't reach, didn't catch. Young lady, he's a man in a thousand. If you want the proof, look over there. He was pointing again, but in a very different direction now. As her anxious eyes sought the place he indicated, her face flushed crimson with evanescent joy. Just where the open ground of the gully melted again into the forest, the figure of a man could be seen moving very quickly. In another moment, it had disappeared amid the foliage. Straight for the station, announced Mr. Sloan, and taking out his watch, added quickly, The train is not due for fifteen minutes. He'll catch it. The train south? Yes, and the train north. They pass here. Mr. Black turned a startled eye upon the guide. But Ruther's face was still alight. She felt very happy. Their journey had not been for naught. He would have six hours' start of his pursuers. He would be that much sooner in Shelby. He would hear the accusation against him and refute it before she saw him again. But Mr. Black's thoughts were less pleasing than hers. He had never had more than a passing hope of Oliver's innocence, and now he had none at all. The young man had fled, not in response to his father's telegram, but under the impulse of his own fears. They would not find him in Shelby when they returned. They might never find him anywhere again. A pretty story to carry back to the judge. As he dwelt upon the thought, his reflections grew more and more gloomy, and he had little to say till he reached the turn where the two men still awaited them. In the encounter which followed, no attempt was made by either party to disguise the nature of the business which had brought them thus together. The man whom Mr. Black took to be a Shelby detective nodded as they met and remarked, with a quick glance at Ruther, so you've come without him. I'm sorry for that. I was in hopes that I might be spared the long ride up the mountain. Mr. Black limited his answer to one of his sour smiles. Whose horse is this? came in peremptory demand from the other man, with a nod toward the animal which could now be seen idly grazing by the wayside. And how came it on the road alone? We can only give you these facts, rejoined the lawyer. It came from Tempest Lodge. It started out ahead of us with the gentleman we had gone to visit on its back. We did not pass the gentleman on the road, and if he has not passed you, he must have left the road somewhere on foot. He did not go back to the lodge. Mr. Black, I am telling you the absolute truth. Make what you will of it. His father desires him home and sent a message. This message this young lady undertook to deliver, and she did deliver it. With the consequences I have mentioned, if you doubt me, take your ride. It is not an easy one, and the only man remaining at the lodge is deaf as a post. Mr. Black has told the whole story, averred the guide. They looked at Ruther. I have nothing to add, said she. I have been terrified, lest the gentleman you wish to see was thrown from the horse's back over the precipice. But perhaps he found some way of getting down on foot. He is a very strong and daring man. The tree, ejaculated the detective's companion. He was from a neighboring locality and remembered this one natural ladder up the side of the gully. 
Yes, the tree, acknowledged Mr. Sloan. That or a fall. Let us hope it was not a fall. As he ceased, a long screech from an approaching locomotive woke up the echoes of the forest. It was answered by another from the opposite direction. Both trains were on time. The relief felt by Ruther could not be concealed. The detective noticed it. I am wasting time here, said he. Excuse me, Mr. Black, if I push on ahead of you. If we don't meet at the station, we shall meet in Shelby. Mr. Black's mouth twisted grimly. He had no doubt of the latter fact. Next minute, they were all cantering in the one direction, the detective very much in the advance. Let me go with you to the station, entreated Ruther, as Mr. Black held up his arms to lift her from her horse at the door of the hotel. But his refusal was peremptory. You need Miss Weeks, and Miss Weeks needs you, said he. I'll be back in just five minutes. And without waiting for a second pleading look, he lifted her gently off and carried her in. When he returned, as he did in the time specified, he had but one word for her. Gone, said he. Thank God, she murmured, and turned to Miss Weeks with a smile. Not having a smile to add to hers, the lawyer withdrew. Oliver was gone, but gone north. End of chapter 31 Escape What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.